Hi, George Lavender here. You can listen, like, and subscribe to the Making Contact podcast, that's the one you're listening to right now, on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and most major podcast channels. That way you won't miss a single episode. And if you rate us or share the show on Facebook or Twitter, other people get to know the show too. So thanks a lot for that. Here's the show. This week on Making Contact. Cesar Chavez has made it to the big screen. Millions of people are now learning about the legendary farm worker organizer. But where did Chavez get his organizing philosophies? He said that I'm doing this fast to take away the hatred out of the hearts of the growers. And also, if there is hatred in the hearts of the farm workers, then I want that also to be removed. This week, Paul Ingalls and Carol Boss of Peace Talks Radio take us down the nonviolent path of Cesar Chavez through conversations with Chavez colleague and friend Dolores Huerta and Jose Antonio Orozco, author of the book Cesar Chavez and the Common Sense of Nonviolence. I'm Andrew Stelzer, and this is Making Contact. My motivation comes from my personal life from watching what my mother and father went through when I was growing up, from what we experienced as migrant workers in California. That dream, that vision, grew from my own experience with racism, with hope, with a desire to be treated fairly and to see my people treated as human beings and not as chattel. Chavez himself was born in Arizona in 1927. His family lost its home in the Great Depression and moved to California to work the fields with other migrant workers. President Barack Obama tells more of the story when he dedicated the Cesar Chavez National Monument October 8, 2012, in Keene, California. Cesar wasn't easy on his parents. He described himself as caprichoso, capricious. It wasn't an easy childhood, but Cesar always was different. While other kids could identify all the hottest cars, he memorized the names of labor leaders and politicians. After serving in the Navy during World War II, Caesar returned to the fields. And it was a time of great change in America, but too often that change was only framed in terms of war and peace, black and white, young and old. No one seemed to care about the invisible farm workers who picked the nation's food, bent down in the beating sun, living in poverty, cheated by growers, abandoned in old age, unable to demand even the most basic rights. But Caesar cared. And in his own peaceful, eloquent way, he made other people care too. Oregon State University's Jose Antonio Orozco researched how Cesar Chavez learned to care for his 2008 book about Chavez for the University of New Mexico Press. When Cesar was asked, like, who was really your inspiration for learning about nonviolence, he always pointed back and said that it was his mother and the practices of his mother. She would, uh, uh, at that time, would try to prepare meals for homeless people in the community. She would do try to do acts of charity and so forth. And so from a very early age, he says that he was... Uh, uh, brought up in the idea of service to people who were needy. Jose Antonio, you mentioned two life-altering encounters that Cesar Chavez had, one with Father Donald McDonald, who was a parish priest and a labor organizer. 
And you said that he instigated Cesar's love of reading and passion for nonviolence. So one of the the um, individuals that Cesar met through the books was St. Francis of Assisi. I, I think that was something that was uh, really impactful for Cesar about St. Francis was the connections to uh, nature and to uh, animals in particular. So St. Francis always believed that it was important to, in some sense, right, commune with nature and to think of nature as a living, breathing, whole system, uh, sort of a pre-kind of ecological consciousness, and to think about nature as a, a being that we must uh, uh, be in relationship with, and that animals are themselves sentient beings who have personalities and lives and thoughts that we can take into account in our own lives. And I think that this impacted Cesar into understanding and appreciation that nature is not just natural resources, but it's something that we have to take into account. It's something that nourishes us, that feeds us, that is part of our own lives and bodies. And uh, I think, quite frankly, this probably affected his own decisions later on in life to become a vegetarian. He was quite honored uh, uh, later on in life for um, emphasizing that a peaceful, nonviolent life means one about treating animals well and humanely in various ways. And so for him, that meant that he had to become a vegetarian. It sounds like also that there was something about his readings of St. Francis and also Gandhi that really impacted him. Yeah, I think that part of it was is that he saw a connection, uh, a much greater connection uh, from his own experiences to these other uh, uh, folks around the world. He was able to see uh, this kind of idea of service to the least advantaged in society was something that was part of a much broader human experience. And from Gandhi and from reading Thoreau, he was also able to see that this was a political practice, and this was more than just about charity, but it was about trying to understand how power structures create uh, disadvantaged people and uh, that we can work to change those power structures. Cesar Chavez also met Fred Ross, who was an organizer who became his, I guess, lifelong friend and mentor, and he, and he hired him to be an organizer. Yeah, the story uh, that uh, uh, in terms of how they met was uh, is really a, a great one. Fred Ross was an organizer with an organization called the Community Services Organization uh, that was uh, 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 an offshoot of the Saul Alinsky groups back in Chicago. And the job of the Community Service Organization was to help organize urban Mexican-Americans in California uh, to do voter drives and to organize, to protect themselves against police brutality in California and uh, also just to get involved in uh, city politics. Fred Ross was sent out as an organizer into um, the barrio Sal Si Puedes, which means uh, get out if you can, which was near San Jose, California. And Cesar Chavez was a young man at the time, and he sort of styled himself, he said at the time, as a young pachuco thug. And uh, they heard that there was some white man walking around the neighborhood talking to people, and uh, they were trying to figure out who he was because they were used to social workers and police officers coming into town and disrupting things, and so they were trying to figure out who this guy was. And so Fred Ross organized a uh, house meeting, which was one of the tactics that uh, uh, the CSO tried to get, is get people together in the house of, of, a, of a neighbor or someone in the community and talk about the ways in which they could get together to organize, to take power, and to control their own lives. And so uh, they heard that uh, Fred Ross was having a house meeting, and, and he and uh, Cesar Chavez and some of his friends said, hey, well, what we'll do is we'll go to this meeting, 
And then uh, Cesar Savage said, I'll, I'll give a signal. When I give the signal, then we're going to mess this guy up. And so they went to the House meeting, and, how, and Fred Ross started talking about a case of police brutality in Los Angeles that was very notorious at the time, where the police had beaten several Mexican-American uh, uh, prisoners in the, in the city jail and had gotten away with it. And uh, Fred Ross was telling them, look, this, uh, there, there are ways that we can deal with this. We can take care of this. And Cesar Chavez said that his friends were waiting for him to give the signal so that they could mess this guy up. And Cesar found that he was instead really interested in what Fred Ross had to say. Uh, he had never thought that there could be a possibility of uh, community members doing something to protect themselves against police brutality, of taking control of the city politics, of being able to change their circumstances. And so he said uh, later on that he never gave that signal because he wanted to hear what Fred Ross had to say. And after Fred Ross finished talking, Cesar said he was he signed up immediately because uh, he figured that it was better to try to uh, uh, become an organizer than to continue his life as a uh, as a pachuco thug. Someone else who joined the community service organization was Dolores Huerta. She told Carol Boss that's how she met Cesar Chavez and how they began their historic journey together. I was a volunteer. Cesar uh, was a staff person. What we had in common was that we were both concerned about the condition of farm workers. And eventually uh, that joint uh, care that we had is what eventually led us to leave uh, the community service organization because uh, they uh, didn't want to support uh, an effort to organize farm workers. Although we had planned it in advance, we thought we had everybody's approval. When it came to our convention, uh, they voted it down. So both Cecil and I left uh, the community service organization to start the farm workers union. So when you were when you first met, what was it was about 1955 or so? Uh, yes, I joined the organization in 55. I think he had joined uh, the year before that. What what would you say were some of those formative moments? You both thought it was important to organize farm workers. Well, we know that although the conditions of the Latinos, and Mexican Americans in the cities was um, pretty bad, the, the condition of the farm workers was very very bad. So uh, this is why we decided to. Uh, well, at some point. Um, I came to the realization that um, the farm workers needed a union, and of course, Esther came to the same realization. And uh, we were still in CSO uh, thinking about, well, if they do not support this uh, pilot program to organize farm workers, then we'll just leave. And at that point, uh, and I remember those words uh, like they're just uh, <laughs> I say, written in my mind where he said, if we don't start a union for farm workers, they will never have a union. And then he said in the next breath, but we will not see a national union in our lifetime. And I said, why Cesar? He said, because the growers are too rich, they're too powerful, and they're too racist. Did he talk early on about nonviolence? Uh, that, yeah, that was interesting uh, because both Cesar and myself had uh, both read Gandhi. And, of course, when I met Cesar, I didn't know that he had read Gandhi. And uh, that was another point that we had in common. And uh, just the whole idea of everything that Gandhi did uh, in India uh, to, you know, overturn the British rule of India, but he did it through nonviolence. So, uh, you know, we both had that commitment. And, of course, in the farm workers' movement, uh, many of the uh, methods that we used uh, to, to, com to combat violence was, again, uh, following Gandhi's. I mean, the march that we did when we marched from Delano to Sacramento, it was not a march. We called it a pilgrimage. And uh, we called it a pilgrimage because we wanted the farm workers uh, to not think in terms of uh, vindictiveness, 
or revenge, but to think more in terms of uh, prayer, offering, sacrifice. Uh, when we did the, our fast, of course, Cesar was very well known for the fast that he did. He did three fasts. His first fast was for 25 days uh, dedicated to nonviolence, and that was here in Delano, California. Uh, his second fast was in Arizona, another 25-day uh, water only, by the way. Uh, all he t- took was water and, and Holy Communion. The third fast that he did was a 36-day fast, and that one he did against the uh, use of pesticide. But the way that he framed it is he he said that I'm doing this fast, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, I'm doing this fast uh, to take away the hatred out of the hearts of the of the of the growers, and also if there is hatred in the in the in the hearts of the farm workers, then I want that also to be removed. In the summer of 1965, it seemed like strike fever was sweeping California, and I wanted to ask you to describe the scene in the meeting halls on the day of the vote to walk out of the vineyard in that summer. And I do want to add to that question because uh, a lot of people think, oh, well, uh, Caesar strolled through the fields or went into a field to talk to farm workers, and everybody came out on strike. It didn't happen that way at all. We started organizing farm workers in 1962 uh, when we left the community service organization, and uh, the strike did not start till 1965. During those three years, there was a lot of painstaking organizing, you know, meeting with farm workers in their homes, meeting with families, convincing them that they had power, convincing them that they could make changes, convincing them that if they didn't do this, nobody was going to do it for them. So in 1965, when the strike happened, the workers were already organized. And since the Filipino farm workers came out on strike, then we had to support them. But it was, of course, very thrilling when uh, we got the workers together, and uh, you know, then they, you know, had they had to take a strike vote, and they, when they did, of course, it was very exhilarating. It sounded like cries of strike literally rocked the meeting halls. Well, yes, yes, it did. Yes, it did, and it was very uh, scary for the workers too, because you're talking about people that were very poor. Uh, when we went out on strike in 1965, the wages for the farm workers were like 90 cents an hour. And uh, the, the initial strike, we said we're going to strike for $1.25. And uh, before, within a couple of months, the growers raised the wages to $1.25. Uh, but then we knew that the, the real issue was getting recognition, uh, getting the rights so that the workers could have representation, uh, so that they could have uh, uh, collective bargaining agreements, which really bound the growers legally that uh, not only could they raise the wa- had to raise the wages and the workers could negotiate their wages, but that they also uh, had to provide other benefits like drinking water, toilets, uh, unemployment insurance, uh, uh, things that the workers did not have, that, you know, uh, protections against uh, 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 when they would be fired unjustly or, you know, laid off uh, when they shouldn't have been laid off. So they needed additional protections, not just wages. And that's what a collective bargaining agreement is between employers and their workers. And that's what we were shooting for, uh, getting something that was enforceable by law, and it couldn't just be taken away. Of course, that strike grew into a national boycott, and um, you directed that national boycott, didn't you? Well, we actually split it up into regions. I uh, ran the boycott from Chicago to New York, from Canada uh, to Florida uh, on the on the East Coast. And uh, after we were able, and then we had uh, other people that ran it on the West Coast, 
uh, when we think of the boycott, we have to think of that as a nonviolent economic strategy because since we couldn't win in the fields, you know, we were getting arrested. Uh, they had these court injunctions on us that limited the number of pickets that we could have uh, at a thousand acre field, only five people to a field, so that the strike breakers couldn't even see us. And that's why we had to go to the boycott. Later in his life, Cesar Chavez addressed a community group about the power of the boycott. And so we say, why go to the politicians? Why not, why not go directly and vote at the marketplace where you can put direct pressure on those corporations that can find a solution for you? That we recommend that. that we, long, we live long enough to know that it works. You see, we hear that, the old cliche that politics makes strange bedfellows. Boycotts make stranger bedfellows still. We can learn a lot from Dr. King and from Gandhi. You know, when, on, the, when the bus boycott, there was no way in the world that those blacks could have ever wanted politically. They couldn't. Politically, they didn't have any power. And they came up with the idea of the boycott. And the boycott began to work. Gandhi's boycotts, some were tremendous, some were strokes of geniuses. And they buried the whole country without war. We just missed it because people were, there was war, so that's not important. But we should reflect on those instances when things were done without a shooting war. Those are important things to reflect on, understand, and appreciate, and try to replicate. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. Because of support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. We now return to The Nonviolent Path of Cesar Chavez, a production of Peace Talks Radio at peacetalksradio.com, hosted by Paul Ingalls and Carol Boss. Well, the, uh, the, the Delano strike was really the, the sort of the initial uh, uh, struggle for the burgeoning uh, United Farm Workers uh, that uh, started in, uh, you know, 1962, 1963. Uh, Cesar Chavez was an organizer for Fred Ross's organization for about 10 years. And so he had uh, stability as uh, an organizer. He had a, a steady income and uh, a house and a car and several children to take care of. And what's the striking thing about Cesar Chavez is that Cesar Chavez decided to give all of that up to try to form the farm workers. So he gave up all of this stability and security to try to work for people that he felt were being ignored even by an organization like uh, the Community Services Organization. So the grape strike was, in some sense, their first effort to build solidarity. And what was really unique about the, the, the strike, I think, is the way in which it was more than just a, a pure labor strike, but it turned into a social movement. It turned into a rallying call for Mexican-Americans in California. California to see 
solidarity uh, between the farm workers and young Chicanos and Chicanas in the cities and uh, also with uh, uh, folks in uh, other parts of the country who started to see that the conditions under which farm workers were uh, struggling with in California, the people who were producing the food that they were eating, uh, were abysmal and that they needed to, uh, as consumers of that food, to uh, get on board. Well, uh, what we did, again, organizing uh, people uh, in communities. We had farm workers that went from uh, the farm worker towns all the way to New York City, to Chicago, uh, to Canada. Again, Dolores Huerta. And uh, the farm workers then would go to churches, uh, speak to people at churches, speak to um, uh, labor union uh, meetings that they had, community organizations, and just uh, getting people to support and not buy, not buy grapes. But more than that, we, uh, organizing people to set up picket lines in front of stores. And when they would picket the stores, all of these volunteers that came out to help us, then uh, the stores would take the grapes out. So eventually we were able to get the major chains uh, uh, to take the grapes out of all of their stores and uh, then get people to stop buying grapes altogether. So it became a huge movement. And so we had millions of people, literally, all over the United States that stopped eating grapes. And not only the United States, but also in Canada, uh, in Mexico, and of course in Europe. That really had to take uh, a, a bit of courage on the part of those who were participating. Yes, it did. And, and many of those that were housewives or they were students, so they were just people out there in the cities and they came forward to, uh, to support the farm workers. But again, we have to go back to the organizing part of this. It just doesn't, didn't happen. Farm workers went out there and made this happen, you know, by, I say, by speaking and recruiting people, getting people to, to, to support us on those picket lines. Uh, so it was very exciting. Could you take us through, let's say, an argument to... Uh, even one person who you were trying to convince not to buy grapes, someone who really couldn't understand, what what would you say to them? Well, for the most part, people were very sympathetic, and, and the message was simple. You know, we have farm workers uh, in California are on strike. Uh, farm workers don't have toilets in the fields. Uh, they don't have drinking water. Uh, they don't have any protections from pesticides, and we need your help. And when you have farm workers themselves that are telling the story, uh, and people can see in their faces and, and see, you know, hear directly from them. Uh, it was a very, very powerful message. In March 1966, that walk, 300-mile walk from Delano to Sacramento, the, California's capital, which was really a way of dramatizing this, what was already a six-month-old grape strike, and I know that one goal I, was to stress nonviolence and, and make more visible the nonviolent tactics. Why was that an important goal of the march? Well, um, because the history, when you look at the history of labor organizing uh, in the fields of California, it had always been one of violence. If you read uh, John Steinbeck's uh, novels, you know, The Grapes of Wrath, uh, the other uh, novels that he wrote about uh, about the early strikes that they had in California, and there was violence, and people were killed. And uh, before we started the union, uh, Cesar and myself, we did a lot of research, and we didn't want that to happen again. We we didn't want uh, the people to turn to violence, either on the part of the farm workers or uh, on the part of the of, of the growers. Of course, eventually, you know, we did have people that were killed. We had five martyrs uh, that were killed in the farm workers movement. But uh, and Cesar. One of the things that he always stressed is that uh, if we turn to violence, we'll use it against each other. You know, so we, we have to stay away from violence. 
And he, he actually made all, everybody take a standing vow that we would not resort to violence. And that's why uh, when we did that march, it was a pilgrimage. The other thing was uh, the, the pilgrimage did not go through the big cities. It went through all of, all of the farm worker towns. When the pilgrimage started, as they left uh, Delano, California, there were probably, I would say, 70 to 90 farm workers that started. By the time that uh, the farm workers uh, and Caesar arrived in Sacramento, there were 10,000 people there. We're fighting for recognition, which is the, the real guts of it. It doesn't matter now how much money they're offered. They wouldn't go back because what they want is a union before they go back. This is Peace Talks Radio, and we're talking to Jose Antonio Orozco, author of Cesar Chavez and the Common Sense of Nonviolence. So according to Chava, La Cosa, as the farm workers' struggle was called, it attempted to improve the working conditions, of course, of farm workers, but he also saw it as developing a larger mission over time. I think that uh, Cesar Chavez saw at a certain part that the the reason that uh, the farm workers were struggling was uh, an unequal power balance between the growers and the farm workers. And he started to see that it, it was about various kinds of power inequalities in American society in general. And he started to see, uh, he makes this connection between the violence that he saw when the growers would call the police out or they would hire security to protect the fields and that they would push uh, the farm workers around. He saw connections between that kind of violence that was going on and violence in, uh, in the streets and in, 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 in the riots during the 1960s. And then also uh, the idea of the United States being involved in Vietnam. And so he started to see that there were uh, connections of structural violence uh, around the world and started to put all of this together that you know, the reason that the farm workers were struggling was that because agriculture was becoming corporatized and that there were people who were willing to use violence to protect those corporate interests against the interests of the farm workers. When people think about dedication to nonviolence, most people think of Gandhi King, maybe the Dalai Lama. Mm -hmm. What does Cesar Chavez bring that is unique? Yeah, I think that uh, uh, what's interesting is that typically uh, when you talk about nonviolence, you have this kind of litany of heroes that are engaged in nonviolence. So people will say, oh, yeah, Tolstoy, Thoreau, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and sometimes they'll mention Chavez or, or Dolores Huerta. But uh, I think that Chavez uh, offers, a, a in, in his practice and in, in the way he talked about nonviolence, was very, very different from the way in which, for instance, Gandhi and Martin Luther King thought about the effectiveness of, of nonviolence. And he didn't, he didn't believe, of course, in violence, but he did believe that sometimes in order to achieve justice, you have to create tension in a community. You have to create a kind of disruption so that the status quo, which is of injustice, cannot continue. And this is, of course, something that Martin Luther King talked about in his letter from a Birmingham jail, of creative tension necessary to disrupt social t uh, the, the status quo. Uh, but uh, Chavez was willing to engage in politics that I think uh, Gandhi would not have thought appropriate for a, a person of nonviolence. The boycott, the strike has been a costly thing, not only to us, but also to the employers. But I think that because, even though uh, however unfortunate the experience might have been and the struggle on both sides, that because of that experience, we have created 
the foundation to what I think is going to be a very good working relationship with the grower community in Delano. Cesar said, without the help of those millions upon millions of people who believe as we do that nonviolence is the way to struggle, I'm sure we wouldn't be here today. The strikers and the people involved in this struggle sacrificed a lot, sacrificed all of their worldly possessions. 95% of the strikers lost their homes and their cars, but I think in losing these worldly possessions, they found themselves. I think it uh, encapsulates uh, what the whole movement was about. And, and uh, I, I also a message for everybody out there that we do have to sacrifice. If we don't sacrifice, then things do not change. And if we do not come together, we do not organize, then all of the justice uh, goals that we want to achieve are never going to happen. But the sacrificing, the nonviolence uh, is a very big part of it. In, in fact, it's a, I think it's the foundation. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. Special thanks to Peace Talks Radio for this week's show. To hear an extended version of this program, visit peacetalksradio.com. And check out our website, radioproject.org. That's where you can get our podcast, download past shows, or make a difference by supporting our work. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. <laughs>